I think the consultants really hurt television news uh, by homogenizing it. If you fly around America now and turn on the TV set in the hotel, in a lot of places, you don't really know what city you're in until the weather comes up. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. One of the ongoing subjects we've been talking about on News Broads is the danger we're facing in losing local news. For example, veteran media analyst Jeff Greenfield told us a while ago that while journalism is evolving, local news is not. It's not only suffering, but it might as well be on its way to becoming extinct. And on another episode, we dealt with the challenges facing local newspapers. Now we're focusing on the fate of local TV news. And there's no one better to explain it to us than Andrew Hayward, former longtime president of CBS News, now a visiting scholar at MIT's Media Lab, and a visiting professor heading up a special program at the Cronkite School of Journalism devoted to finding innovative ways to help evolve local news reporting in this country and keep it fresh. And we are so glad that you are here with us today. I'm very pleased to be invited here. Thank you. well, I've got to ask you, there is a problem. Um, are we in danger, really, of losing local TV news? I mean, you know, the, definitely the newspapers are in trouble. They have no money source anymore, and they're, they're dying out. Um, but local TV news is making less money, but it's making money, okay? And most people are still getting their news from television. So what is the real underlying problem here? And we see that it's, we know that, it's not in its heyday per se, but it, does it still have oxygen? There's still plenty of oxygen, but uh, it's an interesting situation because uh, you have a viable business uh, that still is profitable, uh, to use your point, to, to your point, um, and that is constantly rated as the most trusted um, and the most popular in the country, and yet it has almost no viability for the next generation of news consumers. So it's a very unusual situation where you know you have a still pretty nice car headed for a cliff uh, unless unless it grows wings. Uh, the, uh, the the reason being that the younger generation uh, does not build its life around appointment TV, as we all know, look what's happened in the entertainment world, uh, also doesn't really uh, looked at television to uh, put together you know, a summary of the day's events and is not going to build its day around running home to watch the 11. Um, and I think most importantly, and this is where I would criticize uh, local television news, although I try to be a booster, uh, I think the content has not kept up with the real needs of the consumers. In what way? Uh, the local television news was so profitable for so long that... Almost anybody could make money doing it. Um, several of us all, you know, worked in television news. Three of us at the same station. Um, uh, full disclosure, I have to interrupt. Full disclosure, you were my boss. I will say that you were one of my best bosses ever, if not the best boss. I'm yeah, sucking yeah, up. The now. only reason I was Judy's boss was because I was the producer of the newscast at an absurdly young age. and never should have had the job. So we were both. Absurdly you must have been young. good at Excuse something me. to get there. <laughs> Maybe later, but not then. But uh, but anyhow. Uh, so in a typical market, TV market city, even the number three or number four player uh, could could make money. You know, he, and it's usually a he, 
you know, is a white guy who came up th through sales and plays golf with the Chrysler dealer. And every two years, gobs and gobs of political money roll in. Now there's something called retrans, which is maybe a little bit too technical. But now local TV stations actually get paid by cable systems that use their their programming. So that's another source of revenue. Uh, so it's been a comfortable oligopoly. Uh, so there hasn't been an incentive to innovate and to be responsive either to community concerns or to the tastes of the next generation. Uh, so what got me interested in this project, which I will say immodestly, I'm going to be modest from now on, I promise. So the one you don't have to. No, be, we don't oh, want I, you I to be. be. But I appreciate the, the freedom not to be. But from now on, I will be. But I will say this whole thing was my idea. And if you want, I can tell you what happened. Yeah, please yeah. do. So, so my wife is a successful, fairly prominent book editor at Simon & Schuster. And she was out giving a talk at the Cronkite School a few years ago, actually quite a few, three, four years ago, at Arizona State University. The Cronkite School is a very well-respected journalism school named after, see if you can guess. Uh, uh, Dan Rather? Walter. <laughs> hey, even the young yeah, one I here knew knows this that was name. A group. I knew this was a bright group. Um, right, so named after Walter Cronkite, and it's a terrific place, but I'd never been there. Um, so while she was, I was, I went out as a trailing spouse. I figured if I hang out with her, maybe she'll take me to Sedona for the weekend afterwards. Or something. <laughs> so um, I got an introduction to the dean, uh, a guy named Chris Callahan, who, and I spent the morning with him, and I was really impressed. He's brilliant. Uh, and he built the school up from very modest beginnings to the dynamo that it is today. It's a state-of-the-art facility. It uses a wonderful metaphor that's relevant to this conversation, which is a teaching hospital, meaning the students there actually get to do the work. And in fact, to that point, because the station, uh, the school owns the local PBS station, the students actually do a competitive newscast every day at 5 o'clock that competes against all three network affiliates. Wow, that's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, amazing. So, when I got home, I started thinking about exactly what we've been discussing, which is, isn't local news interesting? It's still successful, but yet it has to reinvent itself. And so I called Chris, uh, and the dean, and I said, look, I th and I jokingly said, you should found the Christopher Callahan Center for Television News Innovation. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you knew I was kidding about that, but what I wasn't kidding about was a a center or program that he could do there, and I thought was uniquely equipped to do, which would have three components, a research piece, what kind of things are going on, there's gotta be something interesting happening in Billings that we don't know about, and then a dissemination piece, let's spread the word, and then an experimentation piece where somebody would come in and actually do experiments with the students that a station couldn't do for itself. We just did one two weeks ago on an anchorless newscast. What would that look like? A station can't really do that. You know, yeah. They don't have the time or the money or the facility. What did it look like? Um, the anchorless newscast was interesting because uh, it actually worked out editorially, Lynn, very well. Uh, and in fact, we have the model here in America of 60 Minutes, which is not a newscast, but it's an anchorless news program where the reporters introduce uh, and tag their, their own, own stories. And they use that same model, except for every segment. Um, and it probably wouldn't work in a fast break news environment, but it worked for that. However, and this should be reassuring to all those anchors who listen to news broads, <laughs> the metrics were not encouraging. They actually were lower than usual in terms of not only viewership, but social metrics. So. If they try it again, they're either going to have to market it better or figure out, wait a minute, maybe the anchor is actually more necessary than we realize. But that's just an example of an experiment. I'm not involved directly with that. Uh, my role is the, well, to make it very quick, it took 
Chris Callahan, the dean, a couple of years, but he got the Knight Foundation to underwrite this program for almost $2 million. Well, and the Knight Foundation is, in itself is, is really devoted to saving local news, no? Well, news in general, and has been focused on local news for many years, but has done very little for TV until now. Really? Uh, it was much more focused on newspaper, the newspaper world and the digital startup world because people thought exactly what we all thought, which is why we're sitting here. TV's fat and happy. We don't have to help them. Well, it's, it's not that, that happy. Coming. Right. It's more complicated. Exactly. It's coming. Exactly. So, the, um, so he got Knight to fund it, and I'm leading the research piece because I, as you can tell from the fact that I'm sitting in Manhattan, live in New York City, um, don't live in Phoenix. Uh, and uh, so my job is to write case studies about stations doing interesting things. So what have you found? Can you give us an example or two of something that you've researched and found that you see as promising? Uh, yeah, so there's quite a few examples. Uh, one of my favorite individual examples involves an anchorman, actually, uh, an anchorman in Denver uh, named Kyle Clark. He was uh, co-anchoring The Six. That is uh, an anchorman's name, yes. if ever there was yes. one. Yes, let's not ask what his real name is. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like his name actually is Kyle Clark. Uh, the, uh, and uh, somewhat idiosyncratic guy known for, a uh, good-looking guy, but you know, piercing blue eyes and rather loud sport coats. But uh, his co-anchor retired. And the number, his six, uh, six o'clock news on KUSA, which is uh, uh, Channel 9 in Denver, owned by a company called Tegna, which was spun out of Gannett. Tegna is an anagram of Gannett. It's probably one of the worst corporate names ever, in my view. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Judy's making a face. <laughs> Those of you who are listening to the podcast can not appreciate it. The, 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 uh, so anyway, uh, so he went to his bosses and said, I'd like to anchor alone. Now, as you know from watching local news... But he didn't say it. He didn't say it in an egomaniacal way. He said, "Look, I've got an idea for a different kind of newscast. I think I'd like to do it solo. I would like to stop chasing what he calls flashing light coverage—the oh, car God. crashes, the police, the fires. We'll do We'll do stories that are, you know, actually more involved with people's lives here in the Denver area, and we will involve the viewers by giving them through social media lots of input." into the stories and lots of ability to react. So he, he and one of his colleagues, uh, 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 behind the scenes, a woman on, on the, uh, uh, quite senior in the newsroom, Linda Katsaftis, worked on this idea together. And to the credit of the bosses, they said, OK, they let him try it. So it went on the air and in the summer. And the first major ratings period, uh, ratings book, as they call it, was in November. And it had plummeted by 40 percent. Now, the overwhelming number of television news managers that I've ever met would immediately have said, okay, that maybe that was worth a try, but we're certainly not going to try it right. anymore. Well, yeah. We're going right. to pivot. We're going in a new direction. Correct. We're going to go in a new direction, maybe or maybe not with you, Kyle. And, 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 but, and it's interesting. The, uh, Linda told me an interesting story, which is early, you know, that winter, um, there was an early snowstorm. And it was not a major snowstorm at all. It was basically a dusting. Uh, and it clearly wasn't, you know, Denver's used to snow. It wasn't going to be majorly disruptive. And so, but everybody else in town went through the usual motions with on the overpass, you know, there, there's, you know. With Jim, a me measuring stick, the right, one inch yeah, of, of that, snow, you know, right? Team, coverage, be, team yeah. coverage, your special storm center. And she you know, she and Kyle, they did it just as a, as a 15 or 20 second voiceover. And she looked up at all the other screens and she saw everybody doing team coverage. She said, I'm sure there's going to be an angry mob of hundreds of people with pitchforks waiting for us outside the station. No, not, they didn't get a single complaint about it. So she knew they knew they were onto something. And the bosses, to their credit, 
stayed with it, and the program eventually went back to number one. How long did that take? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm not sure exactly. It's a good question, but certainly within a year, it was it was showing enough progress that you would not not be pivoting away. Andrew, do you think that that would kill the consultants, all of whom tell you to do all weather all the time? Well, I, you know, you ask a great question. I think the consultants really hurt television news uh, by homogenizing it. Um, there are, you know, as you probably know, there's an army of what I call news nomads who move from market to market. I don't mean consultants, I mean employees who, whose goal is to move up you know, the stations of the cross, except they're, in this case, it's the stations of the stations, right. and they're moving up to bigger and bigger <laughs> markets. Um, and uh, so they bring their formulas with them. So that's an exacerbating factor. But there was a period, and it's quite a while ago now, really I'm gonna say the 80s, when a couple of consulting companies had an inordinate influence on what television news is like. And, you know, it, it's, it was extraordinarily effective. If you drive around, or if you fly around America now and turn on the TV set in the hotel, in a lot of places, you don't really know what city you're in until the weather comes on. Exactly. Because yeah. it's the it's stories the same. seem the same. It's a the man same. and a woman. He might often be older. The sets look similar. So this Kyle Clark and his colleague uh, in Denver was a bold move. And it's an example of the risks and rewards uh, of innovation. Have they utilized that in other markets now? Not really. And even in that market, uh, he also anchors... A later newscast. I can't remember whether it's 10 or 11, and uh, that's a regular newscast. Amazing. You know, we, we always sit around and talk about politics, too. When you turn on the cable stations, it's all politics all the time, depending upon whether you're in a red state or a blue state. But now, Sinclair and other news outlets or, and networks have um, put politics in local news. Do you feel like that's helped or hurt local news? I, I think it's a terrible trend. I think even Sinclair is at least obviously internally debating it because they just pulled back right. one of it, their most controversial commentators, Boris Epstein. Uh, yeah. Um, the, uh, I, I think it's exactly the wrong thing to do because survey after survey shows that while the cable networks that you're referring to, Lynn, have you know, a fervent, loyal audience, and for them, polarization is a good business model. The reason local news is more trusted is that it's not that way. Local news is more trusted because it actually is built on common ground, literally not built on differences the way cable is. So if you start exacerbating polarization by introducing politics, I think you're making a huge mistake. And I would say that if Edison Sinclair were here. Well, that, that kind of leads into the other thing that you're part of, which is this MIT Media Lab. Um, when you talk about finding this common ground, one of the things that um, I find very interesting, and I want you to explain it to me, is this local voices network. Sure. So, uh, so the unrelated project, although to your point, Gene, they, they may, the lines may cross somewhere over the horizon. Mm -hmm. But uh, so at, at MIT, I'm involved with the research group, and we did an election project, also funded by Knight, coincidentally, um, which studied the role of um, issues and policy in the election conversation as reflected in Twitter. And we knew that Twitter was not reflective of the entire audience, but even so, after the election results came in, we decided, you know, there is a local component to people's lives that isn't being reflected on social media, that we didn't pick up on, um, that there should be a way to reach. So we came up with this idea 
of building a public conversation network, which is called the Local Voices Network, as Jeannie says. Um, it's built around a series of small conversations in partnership, in most cases, with the public library. People come in or actually borrow this physical device called a digital hearth that we built and designed in the lab and take it to their house or to a community meeting. And there's a recorded conversation very much like this, except it's about civic issues. It's not autobiographical. It's not like StoryCorps and NPR, which is excellent, but a different thing. It's not what I wish I'd said to my Uncle John before he died. It's what's it like to live here? Yeah, it's, it's about yeah. schools, um, race relations, access to healthy food for my family at an affordable price. And the, uh, the idea is that the conversations are recorded obviously with the consent of the participants, uploaded to the cloud and then searchable and shareable across the whole network so that you, as it gets bigger, it's still fairly small, you will have a whole new way to tap into local sentiment that it's meant to be a countervailing influence to this toxic, polarized national conversation. It's not red versus blue. It's actually getting people around a table who live in the same community, even if they disagree about things, and finding out what's really important to them. Explain a little bit more clearly how it would be used. In other words, do you have to motivate the people to go, let them know it exists to go to the that's library and use perfect it? Perfect question. Yeah, so that's the hardest part. You have to recruit a network first of recruit, well, recruiters and facilitators, and the conversations are facilitated, and there's a whole training protocol because there's a whole art of facilitation. I'm not an expert on it. But the, uh, so yes, these are guided conversations, but they're not guided in the way a focus group is, which is, which of these sodas do you like better? Um, they're just meant to elicit um, really open and honest conversations about, about community life. So the way it would be used is primarily for the benefit of the community itself, meaning it gives you a reason to sit down with your neighbors, find out what they think about things that are also important to you, share that, and then have it recorded and available for others to tap into later. Um, and so you could connect with people within your community, communities connect with other communities around similar interests. Um, but then for journalists, and again, once it gets bigger, it's a great tool because, and this is where the two projects might tie in, for a local journalist to be able to have a searchable database of, let's call them organic conversations about issues of importance to people who live there, and be able to draw on that either as a source of story ideas or actual quotes and content could be very valuable, we think. It's an experiment. It's a, the reason it's called the lab. We don't know if it's going to be. It's one really of, yeah, interesting. One of the other things that you're working on is AI and strengthening the tools in local journalism. How does that work? How does that work? I was amazed when I read that. Like, how the heck does well, that Well, this is probably the most dramatic example of that because going back to the election project, which was called the Electome, the uh, young uh, PhD students and, and postdoc in the lab, you know, who are data scientists uh, trained algorithms to recognize out of millions and millions of tweets in North America every day, which hundreds of thousands were about the election just by the language. In other words, you're teaching a machine to read and understand what the tweet is about. And then it could identify, is it about personality or an issue? And then if an issue, which issue is it? So what, what the algorithm can't do is, um, understand, at least for now, tone or stance. So if I say, 
Mexico wall, great idea. And I tweet that out. It doesn't know whether I'm being sarcastic or actually supportive of the idea, but it knows it's about the Mexico wall. So it's natural language processing at enormous scale that no human could ever do. Because again, this was way too much material. So we actually created a dashboard that on any given day you could access as a journalist and you could see, okay, of all the conversation about the election on Twitter in the last 24 hours, 36 hours, seven weeks, what percentage was about immigration, what percentage was about income inequality, what percentage was about national security, and so on. So it was an incredible proof of concept of what you know what a- AI can do. Uh, we're also um, in, in the same lab. Uh, we have the largest ingest, I think, that anybody's ever done of talk radio. Again, uh, and, and and it's it's searchable and collatable. Again, uh, humans could never do it, but we haven't quite figured out how to deploy that yet. It's not integrated into anything else that we're doing. Has that algorithm been able to figure out Trump's tweets yet? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, Does the, it uh, want to? The, the, no, that algorithm was on sabbatical until... Uh, <laughs> That's good. down you know, permanently. What's the out there of, of everything that you're getting to oh, see? I'm sorry, you know, can I interrupt you for one second? I'm so sorry. Yeah. Joking aside... Joking aside, the algorithms may not be able to quote unquote figure out Trump's tweets, but you saw with incredible clarity how he was able to keep immigration and national security at the top of the agenda almost no matter what. And again, I didn't mean to, I'm so sorry no, to interrupt you, but, his, but I mean, you, 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 so for example, yeah. you would have the, remember that horrible shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando? Yes. So for a day or two, gun control and LGBTQ rights would come to the top of the agenda and you'd yeah. see it which is how you know the machine worked and then after that the trump issues would come bubbling back up his and and you also saw his followers and we were able we came up with a very ingenious way to figure out who which of these tweeters were his supporters you saw them they were just punching above their weight he had a fervent loyal social media army much more than uh, Secretary Clinton did. How many of those were bots, though? <laughs> well, we, we, we did have a way, again, I'm, I'm not a scientist and can't speak to that with tremendous authority, but that, came, that question came up and was resolved, and we were very confident that the data was not bot-driven. You know, I'm interested in the talk radio concept. But actually, you had a question first. I'm sorry, because I interrupted you. No, 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 that's really? okay. I, I was, um, I'm glad you clarified that, because that was very interesting. Um, I was thinking that I would love to hear from you, since you've been able to see all this stuff kind of coming up the horizon, some that you think work really well, some are new. What is it in your eyes that you're most hopeful to save local television? I think it's going to be uh, collaboration and listening. Uh, They're related. Uh, Local and listening, the two L words, uh, are the buzzwords of television news innovation. So it might have been original when we first started saying it, but now everybody is is saying it. But they're important. Uh, Television news hasn't done a good job of listening in the past. It's, there's a reason it's called broadcasting. You're actually broadcasting a signal out. It's sort of, you know, Walter Cronkite, who we, we talked about earlier, is the classic example of what's called the one-to-many model, where, you know, the anchorman speaks and everybody listens. Well, we are in a much more complicated world now. We're in a world, uh, you know, it's fashionable to say we went from one-to-many to many-to-one because you have all these sources. But in fact, if you think about it, it's really many to many because each of us is also at the center of our own network based on our social media habits. So we're also the hub of a network. So multiple networks are communicating with one another. Um, and that's very different from the uh, one to many uh, model. So the good news about that is you can use technology to 
listen, either if you're following social media to what's already out there, we pretentiously call that in the lab, ambient signals, or you can create conversations like the Local Voices Network, and we call those prompted signals. So you can either just listen or you can ask, but either way, you have extraordinary tools, to your earlier question, that allow you to know what people care about. And I don't think stations have done a great job. They've, I mean, Judy and... And, and, and Lynn will remember there was, you know, community, you know, outreach. Community service. Done. Yes, community service. <laughs> Program. Yeah, and outreach. And, Had to host a few of those. Or entertainment, you know. Yeah. And, yes, you'll be interviewing this uh, the priest about right. support. You know, fine. But th- 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 that was, I don't want to say it was cynical, but that was a token compared to what can be done now. It was cynical, and it was the cushiest job at the station. (laughs) (laughs) Julia always wanted it. I know. I aspired to it. What can I tell you? It was a different... You know, I I just having nothing to do with what's new, uh, but to your point, I was in a cab just two days ago, ironically enough, knowing that this was on the horizon, this conversation, and I had a very terrific lady cab driver, and she turned around, she recognized me. She was of a certain age, obviously. <laughs> um, and she said, you know, I love that broadcast, the broadcast that we did, Andrew. And he, she said, because those were real reporters and they were really stories and I can't watch the news. All it is is a bunch of murders and all it is is weather. Blah, That's blah, blah. true. And she went on and on. And I, I said, you're wonderful. <laughs> I love you. You know, but, but I thought about that, that, you know, it, it hasn't, it hasn't passed notice with people we think it passes notice with that the the local news is just so shallow and and that that it has fallen to where it is and the question is will people care enough going forward you know how do you you've got you'll get compelling information and you'll present it presumably in a fascinating new way but do you think people care, enough people care? Younger people will care. Well, you threw in a giant presumption, the fascinating new way. I think that's one of the challenges. <laughs> uh, I mentioned earlier that you know, listening and community con- concerns and collaboration are the two answers. I think that if television stations can tap into legitimate community concerns and, to your point, Judy, broaden their definition of what's a story, move away from these easy but very superficial stories that don't actually affect people's lives that substitute immediacy and recency for relevance, move away from those and find stories that actually affect people's lives. They still have the enormous challenge, and you articulated it very well, of finding a way to tell those stories that resonates with younger consumers and meets them in the places where they're consuming news. So I don't think it's realistic to expect that they're suddenly going to say, you know, I'd like to have another drink, but I got to run home and watch the 11. <laughs> I don't think we that. used to do no, that, though. But Sharon, right? you were talking about, in the very beginning, you were saying that t- local TV news is this car that's a, that is shiny and pretty, but might fall off the cliff. I saw something that had your name attached to it that had something about explaining um, journalism is the engine and you're needing a new car. So it's the, the, the basis and the need for journalism and what it is at its core is not going to change, but the way that it looks to everyone else is. So that was a quote from a woman named Megan Harris, who uh, is the news director for a very innovative experiment that the NBC stations are doing called LX. And uh, the, they've hired a small 
number of young journalists, they call them visual storytellers. They're based at NBC stations, but they don't go out and cover regular local stories. They find their own stories, and they do them much more in the style of a YouTube story. They don't have a broadcast yet. They say they're going to start a linear channel next year, which might make it less of a reporter's paradise than it is now. But for now, they have extraordinary freedom. And the quote that Jeannie's referring to is from Megan, who's from rural Texas. And her father, I wasn't sure whether it was his job or a hobby, but he would take uh, he would take cars and restore them, but as hot rods. Um, and and she said, so that's what we're doing. Is we are the the engine is still journalism, but the car is going to look different, move differently. So she knows it's going to have to really be a different entity in order. To, it's funny that she used the car metaphor too, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. That's- yeah. So speaking of cars, um, what lane are you going to drive it on? I mean, I just, are, will it have to be online? Will it have just because you have to go where the next generation well, online, is? Online is kind of a different. You don't literally be online, but it, 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 will it have to be mobile and 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 on demand? Yes, um, and I think the unit of value. Uh, and that's one reason the Anchorless newscast was interesting. The unit of value is going to shift, I think, from the broadcast to the story. Mm-hmm. Because the story is much more portable and can be told in many different ways. And these young, these experiments, and, and, and ABC has a similar one, these reporters, these new reporters, have been trained not only to shoot and write and edit, produce everything themselves, but to do multiple versions for different platforms. So they might say, this one's perfect. I'm going to do this for Instagram, that for Snapchat, right. this for Facebook Live. Oh, and yes, I might do something for TV if the station calls and asks for it. Um, they're big, big difference. And they're using iPhones to shoot stories. That's right. And, and, and there's, and again, if you think about one of the ironies and one of the things that's still, I think, disappointing with this room for much more progress is that you know newsrooms are recruiting young people as MMJs, which stands for multimedia journalists, but then training them to do the kind of news that we've been doing for decades, going back to our conversation about consultants, instead of saying, wait, shouldn't we be doing the kind of news that your friends like? So I think, Judy, I'm more optimistic than you. I think there's a huge appetite for news among young people, and there's actually plenty of research that Pew and others have done that suggests that that's true. It's not going to be a linear TV newscast. So where does that leave TV news? And a pessimist would say... It's going to be an app. Well, that's maybe the optimist, I think, would say that. The pessimist would say it's going to fly off the cliff, and that'll be that. Um, although there's pl- a long road still because still a lot of people like it. Uh, but the optimist would say, we know video. We have relationships with advertisers. We know storytelling. We do know, you know, we have good journalists here. We, journalists here. We know how to operate on deadline. We have ties in the community. We have a great reputation. We have a lot of advantages going in. And if we can figure out, uh, you know, to Lynn's point, what, platform is going to be most effective for reaching the people who are willing to find our work valuable enough to pay for in some way, we have a chance for survival. And for now, you're going to have parallel paths. You're going to have, you know, the the, the now is going to have to coexist with the next because you can't go right to the next or you will have no money. And bottom line, all news is local. So... There's Absolutely. always going to be a need for it. And 100%. my money is on you yes. to help find the way, because <laughs> they ain't nobody better. <laughs> there really isn't. That's, re- that, that, that's very kind of you. I, I certainly hope that uh, they're not relying on people of our generation to figure out the future, but it's but, fascinating to study it. But the future is the past, because when Judy and I and you came up, 
We went to the Midwest, right? And we had to do all those basic things. Where I started in Springfield, Illinois, you had to find your own story, you had to shoot your own story with a CP-16, you had to edit the film after it was processed. And it, who was your agent? <laughs> <laughs> but this is serious. That, that, that training was the way we grew up. So right, that, but there's uh, going to be different training, well, right? I mean, but no, but, but, but Lynn is right. But that is happening. So yeah, but we're doing that again. Th there's, there's no oh, question that the that right. the journalist of the future is going to be capable of all of these things, right. even in much bigger markets, and will be expected. To, she will be expected to do them. So that that's happening. That still doesn't solve the problem of, you know, of the the platform, the nature of the story, and getting paid for it. Uh, but the other way the future is the past, and I love that phrase that you use, Lynn is that ironically, a lot of the personality has been leached out of local TV news over the years. Um, one of the stories I wrote very early on in this project, I went and interviewed Al Primo. Oh yeah, the, oh, Al well, Primo. Well, so Al Primo, for those of you who don't know him, I'm getting knowing nods around. <laughs> yes. Al, Al Primo was credited with inventing uh, the eyewitness news format, which he, he stole from Philadelphia. Well, he, he admits <laughs> he, he admits that he he didn't. No, he, he actually worked there. He didn't he didn't invent the name, but but he but he was successful in Philadelphia and he brought it to New York. So he didn't steal it. He had okay, it in his pocket. Okay. But 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 he when he came to New York, it was it was WABC uh, Ch Channel Seven here in New York, a big ABC owned station, the biggest. He went out and hired a. An idiosyncratic, highly interesting cast of people who reflected the diversity that he would see as he was walking to work every day, as opposed to, you know, the bland leading the blonde, which is just kind of what happened over over time. And so he had Geraldo Rivera, Roseanne Scamardella, Milton Lewis, and a bunch of others, um, and and and. He, he built this, and they all became giant stars. And you know who did the advertising for them? Jerry Delafamina. That's right. And they were great. And so, so anyway, so the future's the past in the sense that I do think one of the fascinating things to watch will be to see what is, who is the TV news star of tomorrow? What is she going to be like? A robot, maybe? I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> What is she going to be like? What, what, what's her skill set? How much, you know, how, how will her personality assert itself? Will she have to be, to Jeannie's earlier question, political in some way? Um, uh, or or, or to, uh, to Lynn's question, political in some way? It, it, we don't know. But there's going to have to be, TV news is going to have to become less formulaic, less generic, and more distinctive in order to capture the imagination of a new set of viewers. And as I said before, you will be part of the solution, if not the solution, in finding it. And that's why we were so delighted that you would even spend the time with us well, today. Well, I feel like I yap too much. No, 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 no this has been so, so much fun. Thank it's you so really much. Really great. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You know, Andrew Hayward made some really good points about the future of broadcast news, especially local news. And now we want to hear from you all. What do you think of local news? Do you still watch it? Do you think that its days are numbered? And if you're younger, where do you get your local news? Do you feel more connected to your community if you get your news locally? Write to us. Give us your answers at newsbroads at gmail.com. We really want to know what you think, and we will read the best of the responses on a future podcast. You've been listening to the News Broads with Gina Cerrito, Lynn White, and Judy Lick. Our producer is David Levin, and audio mixing by Barry Hirschberg.